Oh man, you guys are asleep today. Is it that cold out? Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, all right, so we are uh, we are in a series that we started last week. If you were with us. Uh, called the present one. We are looking at the life of Jesus in this uh, season of our church family. We're looking at it uh, through the lens of the Gospels, and we are looking between now and Easter. And over the course of this time, we're asking the question, what does it look like uh, when Jesus, who is God among us, God with us, what does it look like when this God-man shows up? How does he bring, in a sense, the presence of God? How does he um, bring it to those who need an experience of God? Um, and, and one of the things that I love about Jesus, and one of the things that I'm learning about him, is that he is the most present individual who has ever graced the face of earth. Um, and that's one of the things that, that sh- demonstrates his, his divinity, his the fact that he is God in the flesh, is that he is so present with us. And that, that presence, what we're trying to wrestle with, is not, it was not just um, true and apparent in the three years that he was physically on earth, but that this demonstrates a pattern that we as his followers get to live by. That Jesus is in fact present with us and at work every place that we go and every one that we meet. And so we're discovering how to discern that presence by looking at the life of Jesus. So, so last week we began in, uh, by looking at John's Gospel. We're going to be there again today. Um, in fact, we're going to be looking at the very next uh, little chapter, um, which has to do with the wedding feast. And we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to show up at the party? So we're going to be looking at John 2, uh, verses 1 through 11, if you want to follow along uh, with us. And it says this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So that, if you're doing the math, that would be up to 160 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you... You have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It's a cool little story, right? Um, There are so many different ways that this story has been read. But there are some clues that John actually places in the story, kind of like a treasure hunt, that, that if we kind of read the clues, we'll understand how to read the story. And um, the first of those clues that John uses is whenever John talks about some kind of miraculous thing that Jesus does, he never calls it a miracle. He always calls it a what? A sign. So, in John's mind, Jesus doesn't just do amazing things as parlor tricks to impress people. He does them as signs. And a sign is a signal. It points to something. And so, so we are to read this story as though it were a sign pointing us to a deeper reality. We're actually to read it almost like a real-life parable. And, and in fact... John uses many other signs throughout his 
his gospel about Jesus. But he, and, and he even says at one point, there are many signs that Jesus performed. I could have talked to you about dozens of them, but what I've done is chosen the few ones that show us the best picture of what Jesus is like and what he's come to do. And this one, which seems very ordinary and odd, is the very first of those seven signs. Which should tell you something even deeper, that, 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 that Jesus is, in a sense, anna- making an announcement about who he is, what he's like, and what he's come to do in this very interesting little exchange at a wedding feast. Um, in fact, I love um, how Mary is the one who discovers the need and she brings it to Jesus. It, doesn't it seem as though Jesus is like grumpy? Like on the surface, you're like, he, he's like, oh, woman. <laughs> you know? Like, come on, like I'm trying to, I'm at a wedding. I'm trying to relax. I'm with my new crew here. Like, you know, we just got started. My hour hasn't come yet. Like, why are you bothering me with this? But that's actually not what Jesus is saying. Literally, if you look at the, at the, the way he expresses it in Greek, he asks Mary, who's never named, but we know it's her, it's his mother, he, he asks her the question, what is this to you and me? Because my hour hasn't come yet. You see what he's doing? He... He's inviting you to connect the dots between the time that's coming, which when Jesus says my time, or literally it's the hour, he's referring to his death and resurrection. He's referring to the ultimate reason for why he's come. And what he's asking his mother in this little wedding feast is, why is it that you think this issue this problem, this, this scenario, what does this have to do with my death? And he's inviting you to ask that same question. It's a sign. It's pointing to a deeper reality. So, so what is it that this story, what is the deeper reality that's showing us? Well, here's the second clue. What day of the week does this happen on? This happens at verse 1. Verse 1, it says, on the... I heard second, I heard third, I heard... Third. Does anything significant happen in the life of Jesus on the third day? Yeah. Um, Yeah, in fact, the most significant thing that ever happens to Jesus, and in fact happens to the world, happens on the third day. It just happens to be his resurrection. Now, here's what you need to know about first century weddings. They were multi-day affairs. Most weddings stretched a week and the entire town was involved. And so there would have been feast after feast. And it's no wonder that the wine ran out because they're literally drinking every day of the week. So why the third day does this all happen? Again, it's because this is a sign that's showing us and reminding us of another third day. So now you put these clues together and what John is saying and what Jesus is doing is is saying that this little story shows us what it looks like to experience Jesus' resurrection life. This is a picture of a life lived in Jesus' presence. And how Jesus' presence is extended to those who need it. This is what it looks like when Jesus shows up to the party. And this brings us to our good news. That the good news that we proclaim this morning is that the better wine of Jesus' presence is available in every space and to everyone. And that as his disciples, we now are invited to join the party and extend the celebration to others. This is a life of real joy. This is a life of real joy. Um, in this little story, Jesus, as I said, is, is showing what the resurrection life looks like. And, and more, maybe more than anything, what the resurrection life does to the world is that it breaks down the typical compartments 
and walls that we've erected as people. And we've done a lot of it. Um, And so we're going to talk about just a couple of those walls that get broken down that Jesus is giving us a foretaste of that now we get to live out in the reality as resurrection people. And the first one is this. these These are paradigms that get shattered. The first paradigm that gets shattered now is that because of the resurrection life, every space is sacred. Every space is sacred. So in Jesus' day, it was generally understood that there was a divide between the things of God and the things of people. And some spaces and places were considered holy as, as, as belonging unto God, and there were, there were many spaces and places that were considered ordinary as belonging to people. And so today we would use the vernacular of sacred and secular. That there are sacred spaces and there are secular spaces. There are sacred things and there are unsacred things. There are places and times to, uh, where we can... In, um, for, for God's presence to be found and enjoyed, but most of life are sort of ordinary things that are devoid of His presence. And, and in a sense, we have no expectation that God will break into those ordinary places. And this is evident in the story through the vessels that Jesus uses to perform the sign, right? So what were the vessels that were filled with water? What's that? Okay, earthen jars, or, or yep, I think they were stone. So we, we know the material. We know something of the size, right? They're incredibly large. But what was their purpose? They were, they were intended for ceremonial washing. Now what does that mean? It means that these jars were set aside for a particular purpose, and they were used only for that purpose and no other purpose. They were used, in a sense, to purify your hands before you would go and be in in God's presence. And so you would dip your hands and your arms into these large vats, and in in, in a sense, you would go from being ritually unclean or impure to now clean and being able to stand in God's presence. And so you would do this before you would enter into sacred spaces like the temple or like the synagogue. And it was required for you to make that transition from ordinary to holy. Now, notice that because this is a wedding and not a worship service, what is... Are the jars filled or empty? They're empty. How do we know that? Because they have to fill them. Nobody thought that at a wedding feast, ceremonial washing jars would ever need to be employed because they're for a different space. Do you see where I'm going with this? They're, They're for a different function. They're empty. Because nobody expects God himself to invade the ordinary space. Now, do you see how we today, in a sense, do the very same thing? So, let me ask you a question. Being honest, I want you to think about your day yesterday. Think about what you did. Maybe you hung out with friends, maybe you went to work. Maybe you had chores around the house. Maybe you spent time with your kids or your grandkids. Think about what you did yesterday. You ate meals, took a nap. How much of your day was secular and how much was sacred? How much is ordinary and how much is imbued with the presence of God? I mean, throw out a percentage. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah, you're like I know the right answer. So anything less than a hundred, I'm going to get it. You know, marks off my test. But if you're really being honest with yourself, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you 
have some kind of breakdown where you would go, you know, I, I read the Bible passage, you know, I participated in the gospel reading plan, sacred, check. So there's like 15 minutes there. All right, I think I prayed before lunch. So there's like five minutes there, maybe, if I round up. I think I prayed before I went to bed, so there's like another five minutes. You're like, Shh, if I round up. And you're like, shoot, the, the, I was awake for like 16 hours yesterday. And I don't, maybe an hour if I round up. See, we, we all do this. We all have a divide in our mind between what we consider sacred and what we consider secular. It, in fact, it's even more prevalent now than it was then. Because we've divided the world into these two categories. Haven't we? You all think that right now, because you're in a, in a building with a steeple on it, that this is sacred space. But then you get in your car and you honk at the person that won't go when the light turns green and you think, I can act a different way because I'm in, se- in secular space. We divide everything into these two categories. We divide the places that we go. We divide the music that we listen to into the categories of secular and sacred. And we tell ourselves, I I better not listen to too much secular music, otherwise I'll become like those secular people. We do this with movies and with television. We do this with our careers. And we think that there are some people that have sacred careers like pastors and missionaries, but I'm just a teacher, I'm just a nurse. I'm just a doctor, I'm just... I have a secular path. I'm not called. We compartmentalize the world between the spiritual life and the secular life. And the resurrection says no more. There is only sacred. I remember one time I was driving to uh, graduate school. I was in seminary. I was on my way to a sacred space. And I was in the car and, a, and the new Coldplay album had just come out. And I was listening to the song Fix You on, the, on my um, playlist. And I was on the northeast extension of the turnpike traveling up to... And I had in that moment a worship experience like I hadn't had in months. And in my mind I was going, is this okay? Because I had... When I, when I was listening to that song, like, and it sort of crescendos, if you know, the, the, if you ever listen to that song sort of at the end. And, and, and I, I wasn't taking it as like a, a, a way of saying like, I'm going to fix myself or, or man, who else can I fix? But I, I, I took that almost like the words of Jesus, like, I'm in the process of fixing you. If you'll just let me get a hold of your heart. I love you that much. And I'm like, I, I was weeping so hard, I almost had to like pull off to the side of the road. Now, most branches of the church would say, that's impossible because that's a secular song. Bull. Because <laughs> God was in it. And that's the point. That, that every space, everything now is imbued with His presence. And that's what Jesus is saying. There are no more ceremonial washing bins that are only used for sacred purposes and you cannot touch those things when it comes to ordinary life. He's saying, get out the holy. Get out the sacred because I'm there and I want to use it even in the midst of a wedding feast where people are drinking too much. I mean, I can't imagine what the disciples are thinking. Like, they, they just signed a contract to like follow Jesus around. And Jesus had promised them that like they're going to see angels like ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I mean, what a promise, right? 
And now the next thing that they know, they're all hanging around a wedding feast and the wines run out. And they're like, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for the, sec- for the sacred and now I'm in the secular. And Jesus says, fill the jars. Fill them. And watch. He takes the most spiritually charged, the most sacred item that was within range and he repurposes it as a vessel of celebration. Because he's saying, everywhere I go now is a sacred space. You don't have a secular job. You have a sacred job. You don't have a secular home. You have a sacred home. Because every space is a place where God wants to show up. I love the way that Gene Veith Jr. puts it. He, he has a book called God at Work, and he says, the Christian life is to be lived out in our family, our work, our community, and our church. Such things seem mundane, but this is because of our blindness. Actually, God is present in them and in us in a mighty, though hidden way. Jesus is saying, I'm present in the secular just as much as in the sacred. It's the whole reason why the very next scene in John's Gospel is Jesus going and throwing over the money-changing tables at the temple and saying, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. It's because he's saying there is no more temple where I will be bound to. Everywhere I go is a sacred space. And if you just have eyes to see me, if you just look for me in those places, if, if, if with every song that comes on the radio, if you just ask me, am, am I here? Is this you? I, I love the question to be asking again and again and again. Is this you, Jesus? Is this you? And we should be the kind of people that are asking that constantly in the music that we listen to, in the board meetings that we're a part of, in the play dates that we go to, when we're washing dishes or eating meals or taking a nap or going to see friends. Is this you? And what we'll find, I'm, I'm convinced, is that Jesus is the hidden master of every banquet. That he is filling his, this place with his power. So just ask yourself, where are you currently blind to his presence? Where have you disregarded his activity in your life? Um, a lot of people joke around about the fact that we um, do so many meals as a church. You know, it seems like we're constantly eating. And some people think it's like because we're part of a Baptist network or and other people are like, you know, Jay just likes to eat. So he's, you know, making the rest of us do it. Yeah. Um, but like almost, every, you know, we, we do um, brunch churches now and, and all of our groups have some kind of expression of a meal at them. Why? Why? It's not just because we like food. It's because we're declaring something. That every t- table that's set, every plate that, that is put out, every glass that is filled, every seat that is filled is a holy act. It is an opportunity for the presence of God to invade the ordinary. I remember the, the first time that we did a brunch church, I was having a conversation with somebody afterwards, and they said, you know what? Because we, we, you know, have a conversation about Jesus while we're eating, right? And um, and they said to me, you know what? This is the first time that I have that I can remember ever sitting down with my family, having a meal, and talking about Jesus. And he said it was weird and awesome at the same time. And why are we doing that? It's 
It's to train us to see that every meal is an opportunity. That every meal is sacred space. So will you ask that question? Where am I blind? Maybe it has been around the dinner table. Maybe it has been in the music that you listen to. Maybe it has been in your workplace. Maybe it's been with your kids as a parent. God wants to invade it. Now, the second paradigm that Jesus breaks down with this little story is uh, is that not only is every space sacred, but every person is welcome now. Every person is welcome in the resurrection life. Um, you know, I mentioned the fact that uh, the jars were used for ceremonial washing, right? That you would dip your hands in the water before you could be in God's presence. Well, the, the nature of having to go through that ritual to be in God's presence, just by the fact of what you needed to do to get there, by its nature ended up excluding large portions of people. Because you had to have a certain level of cleanliness before you even put your hands in the, in the, the jar. Because if you were too unclean in a sense, you could now contaminate the water, which would then contaminate other people. And so they, you would have like a, a check to, to make sure that you met a certain criteria before you could even get clean. And this would exclude, like I said, large portions of people. Like, like, like non-Jews and people with skin diseases, people who are uncircumcised, women who are uh, in their menstruation cycle, people who hadn't been um, ceremonially washed from head to toe at certain points in their life. So, I mean, think about this. But now at the, this wedding, the entire town is there and everybody gets a glass. The, don't you see the, the water that once divided the world between the clean and the unclean is transformed into wine which is now distributed to all. Remember we said this is a sign. It's a sign of what Jesus is doing. And what, in a sense, what he's saying in this little story is that the, the thing which ultimately kept us from the presence of God, it wasn't ritual impurity, but it was much, much deeper than that. It, it, it was a pattern and a posture of sinful rebellion against God, a, a deep distrust of Him. And so we walked away from His presence. And when we walked away, we... we took upon ourselves the penalty for that walking away, which is death. And so someone, somewhere, must pay that penalty for that rebellion. And now Jesus, if you, if you remember, fast forward to the end of his life, he's meeting with his disciples around a table, and he takes up a cup that's full of another glass of wine, And on the night before his death, he says this in Matthew 26, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'm taking the need for forgiveness upon myself. I'm taking your penalty upon myself. I'm taking your rebellion upon myself. I'm taking the... The, the fact that you walked away from your Creator upon Myself and I will be cast out from His presence so that you can be brought in fully forgiven, fully cleansed, fully whole forevermore. And this, this act is available to everyone. I mean, I love the fact that even in the details of the story, the fact that Jesus is, is crucified where? Not inside the city of Jerusalem where only the people who were already part of the religious system could experience it. He was crucified outside of the city walls. So that even the Gentiles and the people that would have been excluded who could never get near the temple can get near the cross. Don't you see? That means that that in that one act, what Jesus is giving a sign for by by 
turning this water, this sacred water, into wine for all, he's saying there's no more divisions between clean and unclean people. There is no longer any division between Jew or Gentile, male or female, clean or unclean. My my blood, this wine, is given for everyone. See, this is paradigm shifting because all of us build fences in our mind around the people that we don't think deserve the presence of God. Around those that we go, where we just cannot imagine God could possibly be present. And for for the religious leaders, they would never even fathom that, that, that a, a wedding filled with drunk people could be the place where Jesus is at work. And you know they are because the master of the ceremony says, look, usually people bring out the good wine at the beginning and then the bad wine once people are drunk. What does he say? You bring out the good wine now. What is he implying? They've already had too much to drink. And these are the people that Jesus announces His grace to. It's crazy. This would be like going to the worst dive bar in the area at midnight when people are about to get thrown out on the street because they've had too much. And Jesus shows up in that place and goes, watch how I'm going to include all these folks. And it's unfathomable to us that God could possibly be working in the people that we consider the most unclean. It just Would you name that group of people for you? It's so hard for us to do that. But we must in order to see the radical nature of the cross. That there are now no unclean groups of people. There are only people to whom the presence of God is is now hidden but may be revealed. And so maybe it's that group of co-workers that just have the foulest mouths. And you're like, how in the world... like? The, the, the profanities that they string together as some kind of artwork is incredible. How could God possibly be working in them? Maybe it's the people of a certain social class that you sort of look down on and, and in your mind you think, well, if they just worked harder, they would have jobs. If they, were just, if they were just like me, then they would be somebody in this world. And we totally discount the systemic racism and classism that goes on in our society and we place all of that blame on the individual as though it's their fault when, when if you've actually spent time with people that are subjugated because of the, the systems of our world, you would realize that God is at work so deeply in those kinds of people you couldn't possibly imagine. Maybe for you, it's the people across the political aisle. And you look down your noses at their policies and their postures, and you think, God could never save someone like that. Maybe it's certain people uh, who identify themselves in a certain sexual orientation. And you think, there's no possible way that God could be in that person's life. Not until they deal with that. Not until they become clean like me. Jesus says it's hogwash. I've come so that there might be no clean and unclean people. There are only people who are now hidden from my presence and there are those that I am revealing that presence to. And it's the unexpected ones, the ones that you never thought possible. I love the fact that at this wedding feast, it's the servants that know where the good wines come from 
and most of the guests have no clue. Who are the servants? Who are the ones that, that, that in your mind you would think this person could never respond to the grace of God, but somehow, some way, you're like, I don't know, maybe they have a hidden read on it that I just haven't handled yet. Jesus is inviting us. Look for my presence in everyone. Don't miss out on it. Now, maybe for you, the, the, the person that you think is actually furthest from the presence of God is you. Maybe you're, it's not the other people that you deem unclean, but you look at your own life, at your own heart, and you go, I'm the most unclean. And you're, it's just constantly like in your face, like you can't see through it, and it just brings a tremendous amount of shame to you. And you need to know that there is no more jars that you must wash in to be in God's presence. You know, once you put wine in a stone vessel, it is now tainted forever to be used as a, as a ceremonial washing bin. Because it's, it's, it's just now got wine all over the inside of it. It's... it's it's, it's tainted in terms of the chemistry, but it's tainted in terms of spiritually. You can't go back to the same, same uh, jar and wash in something once it's been used as a vessel of grace and celebration. And, and in the same way, I, just, I want to remind you, like if you've experienced the grace of God, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've, if you've experienced the, the weight of your sin being removed from you, through the cross and through the resurrection, that there is no vessel that you must wash in now to be in God's presence. It's available to you forever and fully. I mean, I mean, think about this. Like, the job of a religious person is to wash themselves over and over again, and it's never successful. But the job of a Christian, the, the only job of a Christian is to drink in celebration of God's work again and again and again. And that's why Jesus says, as often as you get together, remember, you don't come to my table to, to, to wash yourselves again. You come to my table to drink again and again and again for what I've done for you. Some of you, this needs to change the way that you actually come to the tables when you take communion. Because I think there is far too many somber faces when we come to take the bread and the cup. And the reason that we're somber is because we're thinking to ourselves, oh God, like, I really screwed up again. Like, boy, I, I'm, I'm a terrible person, but thank you. Like, somehow, some way, I'm, maybe I'll just squeak into your kingdom, you know? That's the old way of thinking. That's the, that's the clean and the unclean. There is, a, Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we don't come to the table as as people in need of being cleansed. We come as people who've been cleansed by the blood of Christ who are now applying that cleansing forgiveness and wholeness to every area of our lives, which means we get to come with joy. We get to come in celebration. So I just want to challenge you to come that way when it's time to come. This is the good news that the better wine of Jesus' presence is available in every space to every one. And as His disciples, we are invited to join the party and extend the celebration to others. This is a life of joy. There's, a, there's one last um, thing that I, I, I want to mention because I think it's critical for us as disciples is that um, Jesus is doing this in view of his disciples. 
And it's no accident that he's actually training them through the party. This is a tool that Jesus is using to help his disciples know how to operate with Jesus' presence wherever they go. And obviously it's stuck in John's mind because it's what he leads with when it comes to Jesus' work. And so this is what it means, that the resurrection life means that every party is now an opportunity. Every party is an opportunity. And now we are the people who bring better wine to the world. Now, here's the reality. Um, You guys have been to celebrations, right? Birthday parties, anniversaries, um, retirement parties, uh, Christmas parties, New Year's, like... With every party, I mean, there's a sense, there's this like dualistic experience that people are having. They both see the need to celebrate, but the celebration always disappoints. Right? So you have a birthday party and it's fantastic, but then it's over. You're like, ah, shoot. Or you have a, a Christmas as a season and everyone's like full of wonder and light and then January comes you're like, shoot. <laughs> Or you have an anniversary party and you celebrate this couple that's been together for 50 years and then they go to dinner the next day and they sit in silence as they eat their meal because they don't have anything to say to one another anymore. The world wants desperately to celebrate but then is disappointed when the celebration doesn't meet their hopes and expectations. And what is Jesus doing to his disciples? He's he's saying, this is the life that I want you to live. I want you to seek out the celebrations. I want you to enter into them. And when you do, I want you to bring the better wine, which is my presence. And not everybody's going to respond to it. In fact, there are going to be, you know, like at, at this wedding, most of the people at the celebration completely miss the source of the better wine. They, they, they think it's the bridegroom. And Jesus is okay, actually, with the fact that people misplace the source. Because he knows that there are some people that are going to get it. And so, I, I, just watching this pattern, and see, see, see if this can't be a pattern in your own life, okay? So when you think about moving through life as a disciple of Jesus, discerning what God is doing, see if this doesn't resonate with you. That that we are to enter into the celebrations of the world as Jesus' guests. We are to enter into the block parties, the work parties, as celebrants, because we're the ones that have something to celebrate. And then you watch. Once you enter in, you watch for the needs to arise. And you ask Jesus, is this you? Is this you? What are you showing me? And then when a need arises, you respond to those needs and you do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Even if you don't know if it's Jesus, you think, this sounds like it could be Jesus, so I'm going to do it anyway. And then usually there's somebody kind of in charge. There's like a gatekeeper, a master of ceremonies. And you, whatever you do, you do to bless that person in charge. And then like the servants, like, like what Jesus does with the servants, there are going to be those people that see what you do and wonder why you do it. Like what is the source for what you just did? And with those people, you share what you know of the source of the better wine. You share the good news of the gospel. And then to those people that respond to that good news, you walk with them so that Jesus can be glorified in their life. Don't you see this is a training ground? This, is just, this, isn't, this isn't just a wedding. Jesus wants his people to enter into the world to watch for needs, to respond to those needs, to bless people, to share with those that respond, and to walk with those that want more of Jesus. I'm convinced that if you did this in life, you would see people come to know Jesus. You would see the 
the kingdom of God extended even in your midst. And all you need to do, I mean, it's, it, it should not be complicated. I'm not saying it's not difficult, because it is. But it's not complicated. That if you just view every space as sacred and everyone as a potential person to whom the grace of God could fall, and you walk in these ways, you would see incredible things because we are now the vessels. We are the jars that have been filled and cleansed with the blood of Christ. Um, I have a friend named Michelle. I was just talking about her yesterday with Aaron. And... um, Michelle's been a Christian for a long time, and um, she is a school teacher and a mom, a mom to four kids. And she uh, had left her job as a school teacher for many years while her kids were growing up, um, but she started to sense a, a calling to go back into the school district, and she didn't know where. But all this, I, I forget exactly how it happened, but she... Um, saw that there was a, an opening uh, that would fit her skill set as a teacher in Camden at H.B. Wilson High School. And she's like, I, I don't spend a lot of time in Camden. Um, I don't know much about the city. But she sensed that maybe it was God moving her into this opportunity. So she said, I'll take the interview. So she took the interview and they absolutely adored her. And they said, we want to hire you now. Like, can you start tomorrow? And this was in the middle of the school year. It was wasn't before the school year had started. And she's like, well, I, like, I have kids. Like, a, somebody's got to, like, pick them up at school. Um, I, I really wasn't anticipating, like, having, you know, to, to figure all this out in so short a notice. But she did that, and uh, she started a job there. And she immediately sensed that she had the favor of the administration and the kids. And she would go to work. She would say every day she would go there. And as she was in the car, she'd turn off the radio. Um, so on her way there, and as she would walk through the doors, she would just be asking the question, God, what's next? Like, why do you have me here? I, I don't know the reason. Um, and she started to see a need. Uh, as she was a, a teacher, she noticed that a lot of her kids were really hungry on Monday mornings. Uh, and they were, like, they were like terrible students until they could get a meal into them. And she's like, why can't I get these kids to like pay attention for the first three hours of my day? It's like, and, and so she wondered about this for a while until she realized that it's because they're not eating over the weekend. That the last meal that many of them had happened on Friday, and most of them fasted through the weekend. And so she started to ask the question, like, why are you showing me this, God? Like, why do I, why do I have access to this knowledge? And um, she started to realize that maybe God was putting this on her heart so that she could do something about it. So she came up with a plan to send some of the neediest kids in her classroom home with backpacks on Friday uh, afternoon filled with food. And so they took the backpacks, they'd fill them with food, they'd bring them home, and then they would come back on Monday and they would give the backpacks back in and then they'd get refilled And she noticed that her kids were happier, healthier, they were more attentive. And not only that, because she had taken this step of faith and other people started to know about it, um, other teachers wanted to do the same thing. And so this this opportunity to feed kids over the weekend grew and grew and grew. Well, because she saw a need and responded to it, the administration said, "Um, we love what you're doing. If you think of anything else that you could do for these kids that would be a benefit to them, just please let us know. And she said, I have an idea. I'd like to teach these kids life skills. So I want to do a class for the seniors and I want to teach them about life after they're out of school. And they said, okay, whatever you need. And she said, but you have to know, like, this is going to be based on my, my Christian beliefs. Like, because the only way I know how to do life is to do it with Jesus involved. Are you okay with that? And they said, yes, as long as you help our students because so many of them are crashing and burning as soon as they go out the doors. And so she started these life skill classes with with the kids. Um, Now, this has all happened over the course of months, and she couldn't sustain 
her work both kind of as a mom and part of her church and, and uh, as a teacher. And so she, she came in and she said, look, I, I need to resign my position as a teacher. And, and they said, okay, we're, we're willing for you to do that, but please don't stop what you're doing with the kids. And she said, I won't stop. So she continued this backpack program and these classes with the kids, and it's kind of grown and grown and grown. Well, now she, she's at the point now where um, she, she, she's trying to get like other churches and Christians involved in helping to feed these kids into going into schools. And it's not just Wilson anymore. She's starting to multiply this work because other schools have heard about what she's been doing. So much so the fact that, that she's now having to form a nonprofit just to be able to take in the funds to continue to do the work because it's too big for her to do just as a volunteer in and of herself. And she recently applied for and received a grant for like, I think it was like $100,000 to continue this work. All because she entered into the space, looked for the needs, responded to them, and is now walking with those who want more of Jesus. And I, I was with her um, back in December. We were actually in Camden to pray for the school and for God to do a work. And one of the things that she said, which I, I thought was somewhat prophetic, is she said, I think that God is going to plant a new church as a result of this. Now, she's not a church planter. She's a mom and a teacher. And yet through her, God is opening such an enormous door of his presence in that city. I just think, like, if he can do that through Michelle, why not you? Why not you? Why not us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have broken down the barriers which kept us from you. That you've opened the way for us to not just be in your sacred space, but to be vessels of sacredness in the world. That we carry in our spirits, in our bones, the presence of Christ everywhere that we go. And if we would only listen with eyes open, we might see where you want to move. Holy Spirit, would you impress on us the ways that we've been blind, the people that we may have excluded, but most importantly, what you might want to do in us and through us as we live the resurrection life. We pray in Jesus' name.